0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Third Estate Podcast. I'm your host, AJ Abarca, along with my partner, Anton Bullets, where we discuss anything finance and whatever else comes to mind. With us today, we have David Packham, CEO of Shintai, to discuss the application of blockchain in today's world. David, why don't you just tell the audience a bit about yourself?
1: Thanks very much, AJ. Yeah, um, my name is David Packham. Right, I'm the uh, CEO, uh, founder of, of Shintai. Uh, we are a digital asset company um, that are aiming to bring regulatory compliance to to this space. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm sure we'll delve more into the, that um, in in the next coming hour. Um, in terms of my background, though, yeah, I have a uh, 20-year career in financial services. I started out my career um, with Accenture, which was uh, one of the larger management consultancy firms, and then moved to, to Merrill Lynch into security blending uh, earlier in my career. Uh, after that, I moved across into Credit Suisse and then Goldman Sachs. Um, and it was, I was actually at Goldman during the financial crisis, the, uh, the period of the big short, and, uh, got to see from the inside myself, um, how I suppose really we, we started to work out that all these cool instruments we were working on actually were not necessarily understood by anybody. Um, everyone I think had been operating with this view that the, the world was, just run by very smart people and these instruments that maybe we didn't understand individually must be understood somewhere. Um, and I, I think that's something, incidentally, we, we are seeing in the DeFi space, which we'll t- touch on later as well. Um, but, but there's always a, a mass assumption uh, across systems that you know, somebody somewhere understands these things, even if you don't yourself. Uh, that's not always the case. And uh, that led to me having a bit of a fundamental reevaluation of what I was doing in life. Uh, I think most of us who want to get fulfillment in our careers and in life, they, they need to work on things uh, they have a passion for and feel you're adding value to the world, uh, to feel genuinely in- infused and energized. And um, I certainly found uh, myself uh, really reevaluating what I was doing with my life at that point. I was uh, in my probably early '30s at that point, roughly, and, um, and I'd spent you know over a decade in finance, and, and I was no longer happy with, uh, with what I was doing with my life. And uh, and that's what led me to go an entrepreneurial path. I, I set up an initial business and exited that. But um, around about 2016, I then started exploring this idea of leveraging blockchain technology, um, also known as distributed ledger technology (DLT), to uh, to, to find ways of uh, potentially uh, bettering the, the global financial. And uh, and that's what led me down the rabbit hole of going into the whole crypto space. Um, and and Subsequently, from that, the formation of
2: Shintai as a a project and a platform.
0: That's awesome. Well, you have a great story. And I mean, David, I've I've obviously let you know, I love that you have the ability to offer that perspective uh, from traditional finance and going into the crypto and blockchain space. I mean, you, you... Touched lightly on it a bit, but I'm curious, was there anything specific really of why you decide to make that transition from a traditional financial career over into to crypto and blockchain technology? Uh,
1: yeah, definitely. I, um, I had spent a lot of time arguing with, with uh, people who were very, very cynical of, of banks um, and uh, other large in- institutions. Uh, around the time the financial crash happened, I was absolutely adamant, look, this is all down to the government. And uh, you know it's not the bank's fault, and they, they've really done nothing wrong. Was my initial take on this, and um, so it, it's a great example of, of not being um, of, of people making assumptions not really based on on uh, full level of information. Because as more information came out about how, for example, collateralized debt obligations, uh, the, the CDO squared products had actually been d- derived and designed. Um, this is the packaging up for those not familiar of. of Junk bonds and other kinds of debt that were were basically pumping the housing market and, and global debt, uh, and then they were being recategorized from junk status to AAA um, in a completely unsustainable fashion that led to an, an entire you know collapse of of, the, uh, of of the system and led to systemic damage. It led to um, uh, you know widespread of, uh, large amounts of debt, and what it ultimately led to was the bailing out of uh, large numbers of financial institutions, banks, um, and They didn't really anybody in the industry pay a particularly a um, much of a a a penalty to this at all, and so you know if you look back at that, that was what really led me down this rabbit hole of of really reassessing everything that I had previously based my assumptions on, and and from that I was able to realise that you know what this this is actually not what I thought it was at all. This this is uh, this is not what I want to be a part of, and I, I actually want to find solutions that stop the industry from negatively contributing to the world, and actually we we can we can align interests
2: far more positively again. Interesting, interesting. So,
0: I mean, I'm curious, when you started to enter this space, were you coming with just your, I guess, like business development, operational, financial background, or uh, doing how some individuals start learning like software development and some of the technical aspect of it, of the...
1: Blockchain. Technology. Uh, well, yeah, we haven't. We haven't really that. talked about what I did in banking, actually, uh, in finance. Um, and, and I, I work for mm. asset managers and wealth managers too. And I started off on the tax side, actually. So I, I was a uh, a BB and Java developer um, at the start of my career, not a very good one, um, incidentally. I mean, I, I wasn't terrible, but I wasn't. I was not naturally talented to say out that. Where, where I actually had more strength was communicating with the business, um, and I moved across to the the business side um, uh, over the next sort of five years of my career. So I, I have quite a good understanding of um, the software life cycle, development life cycle. I've done waterfall projects for those in, in the tech area, and I've done agile. Um, and so I have a decent understanding also of um, how um, technical development can become fundamentally misaligned from what the business needs. Um, and that, that was one, one side of my career that stood me in good stead in terms of, of coming into blockchain generally because I've, I've always seen it as an enabler, uh, as a new form of technology that can be applied. But it needs to be applied properly I and mean, it needs to be applied in a, in a structured way to actually add value. And what we've seen across the industry with, with um, most of the early projects is, is frankly they haven't really been structured in any way at all. They just sort of deployed out. So I went down the rabbit hole of, of crypto and completely bypassed Bitcoin. Uh, I took one I took a look at it early on. It didn't really interest me that much. Um and then I took a look at it later in twenty sixteen and, and um when I had exited a business I'd been running for five years prior, and that's what really sparked my interest was was actually Ethereum, because Ethereum had a an incredible concept I'd never considered, which was this idea of the decentralized application, which is I you can run a virtual machine on top of a blockchain and actually operate, uh, you know, entire applications on, on this structure. That was, for me, an absolutely fundamental uh, moment. And uh, and I deep dived into the Ethereum platform, learning solidity at a basic level, trying out deploying some hello world smart contracts. And then I realized this thing could handle about 13 transactions a second and was already incredibly expensive to use. And it was kind of okay so nice concept absolutely hideous for the needs of industry this thing because i was all i I came from a background at that point where i had been working on high performance order management and portfolio management trading systems and implementing those for banks too so i was very aware of of, um the idea at that point that we could leverage this technology to put an entire order management system onto a blockchain And, and as i'm was very familiar with the inefficiencies within the system. Where you've got silos of banks replicating the same model over and over, they've got the same they've got different sets of data. You've got uh, thousands of white collar jobs globally whose entire job is to basically manage the inefficiency of this process and try and match everything up. You could see instantly that you you could move to a vastly more efficient system and and design. Um, But but obviously I I hadn't yet found a technology that was scalable, Um, and that's what led me down uh, another rabbit hole, which was to find another blockchain protocol that was launching. Pretty soon after that, in 2017, and, and I went uh, and started following that more closely, really with the aim of, of leveraging that to uh, deploy an on-chain um, trading system for the first time and, and see where that that led as a potential.
0: Interesting. So we're. Is it safe to assume that you weren't, were you trading Ethereum and stuff like that when we were seeing these, these massive pumps and like the end of, I think it was 2017 until the decline of early 2018, or was it really just the, the application and the use case of the technology that, that interested you?
1: Yeah, no, I I took some exposure. Uh, the problem is I didn't start at the top. Uh, so there we go. Mm Uh, you live and learn with those things. I, I I gloriously held my gains and then went back down the other side again. But um, it, it, that's more because I was far more interested in the application of the technology anyway. Um, and I was very involved at that mm-hmm. point in uh, the launch of of, uh, of another public blockchain called EOS uh, at that point, which has been had an interesting journey in its its own sense. At one time, it was being branded the the Ethereum killer. Um, and, and what's actually turned out to happen is that it's, it's probably uh, arguably underachieved in terms of that potential to, to a large degree. A lot of that actually comes down to network effects and uh, an investment in the ecosystem actually rather than the underlying tech, which is definitely uh, far, far better um, suited for uh, deploying applications and, and particularly for enterprise and industry. Um, but that, that's an important part of the maturing of, of the, sector in general, I think. Um, so I was very focused on that. And while the crypto winter took place, Gentai um, had already formed as a platform and as, as a project, and we deployed an initial version of this, uh, this engine out. Um, and it was for uh, a very niche use case called token leasing, which uh, without going to specifics, enabled the utility of, of tokens, it can be how they're utilized in different ways. Um, in this case, it was network capacity on this public blockchain to be traded, um, and for passive income to be paid back in return, Um classic leasing in that regard. So we built that out, did about a quarter of a billion dollars of trade volume in the first three months, and then the whole use case largely went all the way. So it, it was a it was a good early formative um, example of how uh, I think uh, startups in general, particularly entrepreneurs, need to be prepared to pivot. They need to be able to step back and analyze what's um, what's necessarily worked, what's sustainable, and and what isn't. And, and that's exactly what we did. We, we spent the, the crypto winter building out a much broader concept to actually deliver instead a comprehensive digital asset platform that handled dynamic forms of issuance, secondary market deployment, and all of that operating on a on a client control framework that could really enable um, financial services to, to properly uh, use a solution for the first time and, and further mass adoption of, of this technology. That that's been the broad uh, aim ever since the crypto winter sort of kicked off in about um, January 2019.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting you mention utility because uh, uh, I'm not sure if you've heard. We actually had a previous podcast episode where Anton and myself uh, with the guest, were talking about Bitcoin specifically and the, the trading of uh, cryptocurrencies, right? It wasn't until I will fully admit recently that I've actually dived a bit deeper into the fact that there are different protocols and and uses for the coins. Bitcoin is really kind of termed that idea of being a store of value similar to Dogecoin, but then you have other tokens or crypto assets uh, like Ethereum and, and such that provide some sort of utility. So I'm curious of just do you mind ex- explaining or just educating our audience a bit more of the different types of main use cases that we've seen in the crypto space? Yeah,
1: yeah for sure. And I mean, the underlying protocols themselves operate on quite radically different um, premises too. So for those not familiar, Proof of Work is, is the, uh, the first decentralized ledger technology protocol that, that Satoshi Nakamoto proposed, and it was really an evolution of some cash cash and other e-money e- e- types of um, experiments that have been run in, in the decade prior. And it relates to uh, the utilization of computational power to effectively guarantee network security. Um, it's a very clever design. Uh, unfortunately, it also does utilize increasing amounts of power, um, which further strengthens the network in terms of its ability to be um, effectively hacked by something called a 51%. Network attack in terms of uh, being able to rewrite the blockchain. So it, it, its immutability, its, it's uh, ability to be trusted as a as a source of proof across all the network participants without anybody in the center having to verify, is is extremely strong. And as a as a proven use case for that, uh, Bitcoin has I think really um, proven the design very very well. What it's not really uh, particularly well designed to do is scale. Um, at least on, on, on itself, on its own terms, and be utilized as a currency in any form. Uh, it can be used as a some form of a store of value, for sure. I, I don't think anybody can really look at the value of Bitcoin now and not argue that there is enough consensus globally that this thing has value. It, it's just the, the open question remains, what is its value and why? Um, but outside of that, there are other types of blockchain protocols. Um, proof of stake is another one, and that's the one that Ethereum is gradually going to be uh, migrating to, to hopefully solve some of its scaling issues. That, that really operates on the value or, or on the, on the premise that, um, those people who are validating the underlying network itself, i.e. the blocks, um, and the transactions taking place, they have to put down a large stake, um, of the underlying network token. So in this case, ETH, um, for Ethereum. And, uh, and they start to lose that should they obviously misbehave. So there's a big financial penalty and incentive. Being been caught out um, trying to carry out fraudulent activity. That's the underlying premise of proof of stake. And then there's other forms of um, protocol too. And, and there are lots of them actually that are, are coming out, trying new experiments. But the other most popular one is delegated proof of stake. And what that really relies on is the fact that the validators themselves do not need to hold the, the stake itself, but the network participants can effectively vote almost in the forms of a, a continuous election all the block producers to uh, manage the network. And um, delegated proof of stake also has its own flaws. Um, they all tend towards, arguably towards centralization in different ways over time. And I suppose we see that in institutions across the world and all sorts of power structures. So perhaps we shouldn't be too, uh, too shocked by that. I mean, if you look at the global financial system, as you get to a certain level of wealth, it gets increasingly easy for you to make more and more money. And you can argue See That in, in, in the very kind of almost like the gravity of money itself as well. And the same seems to apply with, with even these decentralized structures too, whereby power gradually becomes more and more concentrated to some degree. And that's one of the uh, governance kind of experiments that I think we're still seeing in crypto, which is how do we truly see a decentralization of power and governance of these networks as well? And that's probably the big challenge ahead. But one of the big advantages of DPOST though, as a protocol, is that it's extremely scalable. Um it rather than be able to handle, you know, Bitcoin's, I think, between seven and ten transactions per second, and Ethereum is currently ten to thirteen, I believe. Um you you're looking at the EOSIO protocol being able to handle five, ten, twenty thousand transactions per second and it can integrate with other chains and scale up potentially infinitely. Uh, and that that is very powerful when you're looking at um the use case of applying this to industry because Industry don't care about, um, this level of decentralization. They see it more as a spectrum. They're interested in leveraging the efficiency gains of DLT. But what they're not necessarily interested in, particularly at this stage, is trying to operate all the financial system on a completely public blockchain. Um, and actually when you start to examine things like regulatory compliance, there's a a lot of very good reasons why it's not particularly fit for purposes as a design anyway, because you've got that immutability, which means you can't actually undo criminal and illegal activity either, um, which really, therefore, doesn't lend public blockchains particularly well for uh, regulated DeFi. Yeah. Well
3: David, you, um, you mentioned earlier, and then you just now mentioned it again, the, like, kind of the barrier of blockchain and crypto uh, to making the financial industry uh, more efficient. Um, cause a- AJ and I've had this conversation multiple times of whether it is crypto and blockchain or other technologies. It seems like the, the financial industry is always a little bit behind in implementing any kind of new technology because, and I think a lot of that has to do with the regulatory aspects and compliance. Um, but what is it? I think maybe I, I guess my question is, what is it that you've seen, uh, that is a little bit more specific to why that is so. Like, why is it that it takes um, just those extra years to implement something that maybe other industries are able to um, adopt kind of, at a faster uh, rate? Yeah, adopt at a faster rate. Like, th- is it because of the testing? Is it wh- what is it in your experience that uh, makes yeah, that Yeah, it's, it's
1: a very good question. I think one of the big misconceptions externally outside our industry. I mean, you guys are from the the financial industry too so you probably appreciate this well. One misconception is that there's not deep deep technical expertise in uh, in financial services and, and that, that couldn't be further from the case. It's, it's a highly innovative area with some of the best technicians you'll ever meet um, and, and partly that's because it pays well as an industry so it's able to attract that talent but if you look at the history of, of uh, the financial system it, it's been innovators um, Creating either innovative new products or financial systems around those to actually support those products um, bespoke completely from the ground up. They created their own tech to support that. Um, so they, if if you actually look at um, the the history of kind of blockchain, it really hit the rate the the radar of the financial services industry meaningfully in the last crypto boom uh, at the back end of twenty seventeen onwards because that was when it got really the whole world's attention. I mean, there was this enormous bubble that, that formed, and it, and the returns were outrageous. But at that point, internally, the banks, for the first time, started to realize, hang on a second, this technology is applicable in our industry, in, in definitely in some form here. We can actually utilize um, this technology. And if you just take a step back and look at our architecture, it's, it's a mess. But if you were to apply even just blockchains in localised regions across the trade life so we could make huge efficiency gains. But if we actually have the entire industry operating on, say, a single chain, well, the efficiency gains are just enormous here, and suddenly old concepts like settlement and clearance become obsolete. And the idea of the middle and back office, which for those not familiar, these are the guys doing jobs which are simply reconciling trades and making sure they match with a counterparty on another, the other side, of that could disappear and nothing incentivizes banks more than the opportunity to fire people and save a load of money. So what, what's actually happened subsequently though is that just as they started to get really interested uh, we saw a massive crackdown by the authorities on the ICO boom which is for those not familiar the initial coin offerings were these these uh, effectively they were unlicensed securities offerings taking place during this 2017-18 boom uh, where companies were raising vast amounts of money issuing in many cases what was effectively a form of security Without any licensing, and uh, what was good about that is it showed the it showed why there were rules in place in the in the existing industry because we saw mass fraud, mass misrepresentation, exit scams, uh, retail investors acting, you know, in a very irresponsible way and mortgaging their houses and losing vast amounts of money. It was a wonderful example of why there were some rules and controls in the existing system for me. It showed that, you know, it, you you can sit there and be a crypto anarchist all you like, but actually if you let the entire market operate without any kind of rules or regulations, you're going to see criminal activity and uh, and it's going to run rampant. And so uh, just going back to my original point, the reason, therefore, we've seen this delay to Anton's point is that um, that really scared the banks off touching this technology in, in a meaningful way. They continued internal experimentation. Uh, and they've been doing that for a number of years since. And they, there is some deep expertise in house with many of the largest, um, financial firms now. They have digital asset teams. They have strategic investment teams that sit alongside them. They are looking to, um, leverage this technology for sure. Uh, and they are looking to, I think, leverage tokenization and the potential of that to create new asset classes or, or disrupt fundamentally existing ones. Real estate being a, a really big example of that. Um, and it's all coming. Um, so, so the final question that you asked, why has is, is it taken them arguably longer than, say, some other sectors where we're seeing blockchain becoming adopted slightly more rapidly? Um, examples of that would probably be things like the gaming sector and NFTs. Uh, well, the reason is that they're not regulated, whereas you've got a security, for example. Um, you, you can't mess around and risk your own financial licensing and your established reputation and so on. You've got to be much more cautious. And so really what they've been waiting for the the global institutions, is a series of solutions that actually are fit for purpose, have been designed from the ground up to enable um, them to actually experiment with this technology, prove the concepts internally, and then when feeling secure about it, actually start to launch these types of marketplaces. And I think that's the point we're at now. I think we are seeing the first solutions fit for purpose that have been designed from the ground up to to meet their needs. And and I think we're going to see mass adoption now over the next two to three years Really kicking in um, across
0: the global financial. Yeah, I'm kind of, uh, I want to segue there with your idea that we're going to start seeing increased integration in these different applications. What are your thoughts then? in regards to the coexistence between the traditional assets that we have, right? In regards to equity, public stocks, bonds, what have you, and those crypto assets that we're seeing. And are you at all, you mentioned earlier about the ICOs, are you at all fearful? Because we are still seeing ICOs coming out for a lot of coins that, in my mind, my perspective, at least, they don't really serve any sort of value, right? I think, there's like, Eno, and so you can just create a coin in an hour or so and release yeah. it. It kind of reminds me a bit of, you know, the dot com bubble, where if you had a dot com at the end of your company name and you just tried to issue out a, a security back in the day, entering that kind of era. So I guess it's a two part question on the integration of the two asset classes. And what are your thoughts of possibly a dot com bubble 2.0 or Internet 2.0 bubble?
1: Yeah, in terms of the integration of the um of the two asset classes, I, I think that's been really well illustrated by the likes of Binance and there's another network called Terra, with which has something called the Mirror Protocol. Uh they they've come up and it's become very popular in the last uh probably the last six months, this concept of something called stock token. Now, what what does that actually mean? It means that the underlying token is is one to one backed with uh, a security in uh, a, a traded and licensed security. So for example, you've got, you have got you know, Binance started listing and, and you were able to trade Tesla tokens that were one-to-one backed with Tesla shares and they did this for a multitude of others. It, um, as soon as I saw that, uh, I thought it's only a matter of time until the regulators shut this down because this is effectively an unlicensed, uh, you can either call it a derivative, some form of security derivative but it's it's something that is definitely unlicensed and is bypassing all the controls and and rules around who can be valid participants in a given marketplace um it's it's uh, effectively also a fantastic tool to enable uh we say the the criminal underworld uh, to be able to invest in in you know public securities uh without any controls around them and uh I suppose therefore if you look at that that question about the this uh this uh, intersection between digital assets and we'll call them traditional assets, uh, there are enormous benefits from the move towards digital. Um, and we can, we can touch on how some of that innovation is possible. But the, the single biggest thing for those not familiar is that tokenization doesn't just enable the, the representation of, of an asset as a digital unit, because that can be done, you can argue, right now with, with securities now. What it does, though, is it enables you to uh, be able to firstly lower the cost of the, that that issuance process and the trading process, but it also enables the encoding of different types of properties into that uh, at the smart contract level. And what that means is you can embed uh, and automate all types of things like corporate actions. And indeed, you can innovate and add all types of new behaviors, um, a lot of which will have not even been thought of yet, so that you can um, create a completely custom asset. And now, this is quite hard for people to get their heads around because we're we're into a completely uncharted territory here. But we're actually going to enter a, a period of innovation when we hit this, whereby uh, you're going to see financial institutions really coming up with dynamic forms of uh, of uh, of assets that almost have properties that are a bit securities like, maybe a bit bond like, maybe they've got insurance related components in them. Um, they they can have all all manner of different things almost embedded within them as a kind of this spoke package that investors kind of uh, get exposure to, and that they, that will enable um, aspects like adding additional levels of uh, in, uh, protection to downside risk, for example. Um, you you could have corporate actions that are also enforced within there as well. And um, so so to kind of go back to it, I think what we're going to see over time is the um, although we've seen this experimentation with stock tokens, is that we, we are going to see an increasing move towards traditional assets, effectively migrating to becoming digital over time. But what we need for that to actually take place is that it needs to, it needs to operate um, in a regulatory compliance control framework of some sort. So in other words, it needs to utilize the blockchain technology, but in a way that uh, enables compliance to be fully enforced. And one of the biggest examples of that is the ability to say segregate markets and decide who's a valid market participant or not. So you can't have a scenario where you can just, you know, issue a Tesla token and then send it off to Kim over uh, in North Korea and say, here you go. You can buy as much uh, Tesla stock as you like when they're in the global financial system. North Korea is a restricted jurisdiction. Now, uh, that's the problem with trying to utilize public blockchains. Um, You know, there there are certainly rumors that uh, many of these kind of restricted countries are big investors in the public blockchain token space because it gives them a means to actually um, effectively participate in the, in the wider financial system, whereby they're restricted um, elsewhere for, for good reason. And, uh, and so we're going to see that side of things for sure. And then I think what was the second question you asked? In
0: regards to your thoughts of a uh, dot-com or Internet uh, 2.0 bubble. Yeah, the bubble, the, the bubble so,
1: side. Um, I, I think what mm-hmm. we're seeing with regards to a lot of the tokens being issued, I completely agree with you. What we're seeing there actually really represents um, the ICO thing all over again in one sense, which is if you give people an opportunity to try and make a quick buck and uh, pump and dump and exit, you'll, you'll find people all over the world who will have no qualms about doing that directly at the expense of others. I mean, I, I personally find it fairly abhorrent because what you're doing is you're not really creating wealth or value in the world. What you're actually doing is a direct transference of wealth from one group of people to yourself and uh i saw that you know in the financial system at its worst back in 2008 9 10. um and it, so it's it's never something that's particularly interested me and the reason that happens though is is what you really mentioned which is you couldn't see an, any underlying point or utility to some of these tokens and you're right uh, in many cases take, take the shiba coin which is nothing more than a, a another mirroring example it's another puppy coin right it's 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 dodge coin too cashing in on, on, on yeah. that, and it's got billions and billions of dollars of current valuation on, on trade traded on the market, but it does add absolutely nothing new, because if it's just a clone of the existing protocols and uh, and so on and so forth, why is it adding any value? It doesn't have the network strength, participation, liquidity that you could argue is, is what drives value into, say, Bitcoin, um, or it doesn't have any of the kind of underlying ecosystem uh, of, of Ethereum. And it doesn't have really any of the solid uh, ability to build applications on top of like IO. So you step back and look at that, and that's a fundamental irrational mispricing by the market, which is a classic sign of a bulk activity. But it's also a classic sign of um, new technology that's disruptive and people getting excited about it and not really know what the hell they're investing in. So, you know, that I think there's an element of speculative investment based on uh, the greater bull hypothesis that people are buying these tokens expecting to find some idiot to sell them to an, an app in the future for a higher price. And then there's just a the general misunderstanding about the technology. They they want to get some crypto exposure. They don't really know what they're doing and they're trying to pick something that will yield a good result. So, yeah, but there's some parallels definitely with the dot-com boom uh, and bust uh, in that regard. And I think what we'll see um, in the aftermath of uh, the, the next cycle where we probably – I don't think we're by any means at the top of this cycle, incidentally. I think we've probably got another year to 18 months before we hit another crypto peak. Um, we will see a correction, but we'll also, I think, see in the – similarly, we're going to see those early Google, Amazon, Facebook-type companies emerging out of that, and we already are in some cases, um, that are going to become absolutely dominant in this this new uh,
2: new era of digital assets.
0: Yes, that completely makes sense, and I I love your explanation on that. I mean, earlier you had mentioned Binance doing the the tokenized stocks, and I think if I recall, correct me if I'm wrong, that recently they decided to stop that, and it could be because of the being regulated. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of media attention lately. I mean, I just saw, for example, CNBC talking about uh the stability of Tether, which is supposed to be tied to the fiat currency of the US dollar and how they're utilizing commercial paper to do that aspect, but they haven't conducted an audit, which they've promised and such. And then this kind of whole DeFi space, decentralized finance space. Uh, can you explain really the, that concept of, of what DeFi really is? And you know, Is that something? If it's decentralized with these kind of are these audits supposed to be mandatory? If it's decentralized, how is that supposed to to work, really? Well, firstly, a good good, good
1: question to ask is: Is Tether actually decentralized? Um, And and I would argue no, it's not. It's uh, it's a fairly centralized structure um, that's operated um, by the effectively by the Bitfinex team as well. I believe they've got a lot of overlap there. Now they 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 have been relatively transparent in recent months, years regarding the structure of this. Um, and, uh, they, they have at least disclosed um, the underlying backing of this. So commercial paper being a big part of what it's backed by, as well as some, you know, a certain proportion is, is crypto based assets. Some of it is, is indeed fear. Um, but that doesn't satisfy some people who, who will then go, well, look, this thing should be 100% backed one to one to the US dollar. The flip side of this is you, you can argue that um, nor is the uh, existing financial fiat system backed by anything meaningful either, right? So there, there are ways to look at this. Um In in one sense, it's an amusing uh, example of the fact that and in it, it, it the, the critics of Tether are infuriated at, at its success because they can't understand why um, there is confidence in it. But what they don't seem to understand is what that you could argue that why is there confidence in really most of the fiat currencies when we've been printing? A third of the world's U.S. dollars. You can say well, it's backed by the U.S. economy, and the U.S. government, so there's backing there. But actually, the the, the tether stablecoin, as the innovator in the system, has actually quite successfully operated through some massive market volatility. Um, and therefore, you know, when you look at it as a store of, of uh, stable value, um, it's not really that outrageous in terms of its structure and design compared to uh, the fiat system itself. Um, the fact that they are choosing not to go you know, a much higher proportion backed by fiat, I think, is a shame um, because that does always and will lead to persistent questions related to to, to its kind of uh, ability to uh, re- remain completely safe, as it were, for people. Um, you could argue there's a structural risk there, but what we're also seeing is a is a massive growth of other stable tokens um, that uh, are, are applying the same underlying principles, but with different um, we say different levels of uh, um, structuring. So Less commercial paper, and the USDC, which is uh, the Coinbase one, is, is another big example of that. And there's another one called UST, which I believe is fully crypto backed, um, and that's you know another interesting concept. Go for a fully crypto backed um, stable token when you think about how volatile uh, crypto itself can be. Is is an example of where we get to the DeFi system part of the question, which is what is DeFi? How sustainable are some of these ecosystems we're seeing built out? And indeed, what are some of these ecosystems in general? Because, uh, they're quite diverse. You can argue they're quite, uh, innovative, but they've also got some very strange concepts that for people in the financial services sector who, who come from it kind of look at and scratch their head and go, what exactly is this, you know, that's been created? Um, so if I'll touch on that, but, but feel free to interject if you wish. Decentralized finance, DeFi. Um, what we're seeing is, is, uh, Large numbers of blockchain infrastructures being deployed, where, whereby you're seeing uh, effectively financial services of different sorts being deployed on them. But really, if you actually look under the hood of what's driving this, um, they are inflationary schemes that are being wrapped um, up around the token economics, tokenomic modeling. So in most cases, you're seeing um, investors going in on the promise of yield. But what, this, what is actually driving the yield? Is it is it some sort of economic value that's being driving driving the, the, the yield. So I is is it like, for example, uh if we were to provide liquidity services to a to a commercial marketplace. So they're paying you a proportion of the the economically generated profits to to service the market. No, no they're not. So so what are they doing? Well they're usually saying we'll issue 10, 20% inflation a year and you get that yield for locking your value in with us. And then they're saying things like, well now what you can do is will collateralize those that, that capital that's locked in the system and will enable other people to borrow for other types of things like uh, farming schemes, which is an- another form of uh, yield uh, and so on. It becomes a kind of circular scheme whereby more and more of these tokens are just being issued out. And it, what's driving it in right now is, is greed and, and speculation. But what's eventually inevitably going to happen with those schemes if they cease to be the, the, the ones offering the highest yield is logically they will see some sort of major correction. And given that they're highly inflationary and there isn't a lot else underlying it by way of real economic activity, those types of models will probably collapse in the next crypto um, correction. And, and what we'll see from that is, uh, is probably a reevaluation of the, the DeFi system like that to something hopefully more sustainable where we see less of this kind of uh, experimentation which is just largely trying out token models and seeing what happens um, and so on and we'll actually start to see meaningful useful services so i'll, I'll give you an example of a really good valid um d project and that's nexus mutual So nexus mutual operates on the ethereum blockchain and it provides a decentralized um, insurance governance model and it provides smart contract insurance to um, DeFi companies on the Ethereum blockchain. Now, it needs to do that because Ethereum is so immutable that if, if there's a, a exploit discovered in the smart contract, um, they can be hacked and you can see the users losing large amounts of money. So there's a defined need for insurance products. Um, they're a great example for me of a, a DeFi company that's offering a real value and a real service, uh, and an economic service. They're making good money um, and they're offering a valuable service. But but for every one of them, there's probably twenty or thirty of these types of DeFi platforms that are kind of arguably offering tenuous to little value in terms of actual economic value at this stage.
0: Okay. And I mean, from what I've heard uh in the layman's terms or what I've heard from the general public is the and correct this if if I've if I'm misinterpreting what I've heard from let's call it the the general public, right? Those not typically really ingrained in the crypto spaces. The attractiveness of the DeFi space is, well, it's decentralized and there's no centralized hub. But, I mean, you touched based earlier on it that eventually, I think Anton can agree on this as well, like no government will allow a sort of decentralized system to essentially take over completely a fiat currency, right? Essentially, regulation will have to come into play. That's been a major component of most of this conversation of the technology is great. It has a lot of potential use cases, but there does need to be some regulation and compliance in the play. Does it sound about right?
1: It it, it does. I think there's something really, really powerful, though, about the the ideology behind Bitcoin itself, which is if we look historically, it's really only been in the last 100 200 years that, that the government or governments globally have controlled the money supply or what we, we deem to be money. Yeah, you know, we, we, for thousands of years prior, we were, we were trading directly forms of uh, asset backed commodities uh, as money, gold being the obvious example, uh, and that wasn't controlled by government at all. And, uh, and and you have to look at the way governments typically behave globally, um, both in terms of the, it goes back to this point I made about centralization of power. What does centralization of instilled in power over time typically also lead to? And that, the answer is corruption. We, we've seen it you know, over thousands of years of history. It typically happens, human corruption instilled in institutions. And if you therefore give them full control, unfettered control over the money supply, well, then you see things like what happened in 2008 9, right? Which is that ultimately, uh, when, when there should have been a number of banks that were left to, to rot and fail, they were bailed out with taxpayers' money and ultimately the some of the poorest in society paid the highest cost. Now, um we can we could debate all day the some of the the, the aspects of this, but I do think there's a lot to be said for this uh, this concept that uh there is more of a uh, an a, a control over the, the, the what we define to be money. And actually I think crypto itself redefines in some senses what money and stores of value actually are. And it, it has the potential instead to enable all of us to become our own issuers of, of value. So as an example, you can run a fund or a company. Uh, you should be able to issue out your own securities extremely cheaply in that company, and you should be able to operate a marketplace too if you want on that. On that. Um, and you shouldn't have to ask for, for permission to do that. Um, yeah, you might have to obey a certain set of rules on that, and that's fine, but really in democratizing that access uh and opening that up is is for me a really powerful part of this. And then the other side relates to custody, which is is it unreasonable for people to be the complete custodians of their their own assets? Uh I don't think it is. Um I I mean an interesting example of this is a Brit who's now US resident is the concept of the US government have the concept that they can just go into your bank account and take money out. Which Americans might think is the most normal thing in the world, but I assure you it's not. In the UK if the government decide that you owe them money they can't take money out of your account. That's not legal. They have to go through a due process to try and actually win that, I mean, you know, et etc. They can't just literally go into your account, take the money, and say, good luck getting it back off us, even if we've made a mistake. So I think it's a good illustration there of differing standards. And um, people globally should question what, what is an appropriate level of control for government around money and so on and so forth and what is not. I, my view is that we'll, we'll find a, a healthy balance between all of this. Um, there needs to be controls. Um, but I, I do think that we've seen some fairly grotesque mismanagement of money really in our lifetimes over the not, last 30, 40 years. And it's, um, it's led to a, a kicking of a can down the road r- with regards to a lot of this. And I think we're probably going to see some sort of a, incredible um, point where the financial system hits a point of, uh, of debt that probably needs some form of effective reset. And uh, we've seen that before historically as well, back in the back end of the 19th century. So this is not entirely new. But when that happens, um, you know, this is where we will see an interesting uh, interjection between, uh, should we say, tokenized government money and uh, the the DeFi space itself. And we may find that um, it it does become some sort of unstoppable force to some degree that um, that people just cannot be stopped from using Decentralized systems as ways of storing value. We'll see; um, it's going to be interesting.
3: See, David, yeah. this is this is where you know you're, you're speaking my language right here, right now. I think we need to make you a, <laughs> a permanent guest on this podcast. Oh. This is this is uh, so what you what you just said. I think is is wholly relevant, and uh, I think it's important for people to hear. And I've I've talked with AJ about this before because. On the one hand, right? Why do we have, why does the crypto space exist in the first place? It's because people are losing faith in government's abilities and just their actions of how they are managing currency and certain economic actions. You mentioned one of them being, um, uh, the, the bailing out of the banks, right? And so you, you just that, that inflationary aspect people are looking for alternatives and when you look at the crypto space though you have crypto certain currencies that use as you mentioned they don't have a use there's no um there's nothing behind it and so that's where for me when i'm looking at okay the crypto space i'm it's kind of a threading of the needle because i think if you're talking just uh hey i want to just create a currency and i'm just going to make it up on my own if there's nothing backing it what makes that any better than what some of these governments are doing? I would, for me personally, nothing. Um, and that's where when I look around in this space, I want to see, um, I want to see the use behind, uh, the coin or, or the technology itself. And I think that's where, you know, for your company, Shintai comes into play. And, um, I think, you know, if you could touch a little bit on how you see, shintai how it differentiates itself from you know some of these other areas because um i'm sorry i'm going a little long here but uh i i just i think that's a big difference because when i look at a lot of these cryptos i think some of them also are create they're creating the the crypto and then they're basically saying to the markets and the the financial industry okay use me you know i don't i haven't figured out how to use a use for myself so you need to figure out how how i can be abused Instead of saying, okay, here's an existing industry, how can I improve the existing industry, maybe change it, but, but still fit in the framework? I think that's a, a, a clear distinction. Um, oh, oh, totally, yeah, no, absolutely.
1: And, and, and you raise a really interesting point around uh, these tokens that are created that don't necessarily have any obvious utility. Um, I suppose you could argue that if you look at uh, fiat as a general system, we could all quite happily, in theory, be operating off a single global currency, right? There's nothing to actually stop that concept in theory, but we do have replications. That, but then you then you could look at the specifics around that and say, well, actually, no, that's because uh, people utilise money very differently. The economies therefore need more regional uh, currencies because they reflect regional economic policies, and that could be things like tax rates, regulation, and uh investment and innovation and, and so on and so forth. So there it's justifiable. Then then you have to take a look at your right. Um you know there are a, mul- a multitude of uh of Bitcoin clones, for example being Litecoin. What does Litecoin really offer that Bitcoin doesn't? It's a great question. Despite its it's very high valuation still. Um not a lot really, right? I mean it's uh you know ultimately a lot of the underlying miners um can happily mine on both chains. Um and so you know, I, I think you, you're raising a very valid point here, which relates to generally token, tokenomic design. Um, and, and so certainly when you look at the, the design of tokens in general, they have to be thought through very, very carefully and be, be prepared to be adapted somewhat in response to, um, time as well, because it's, um, a lot of them have not been designed, I think, with a particularly strong understanding of economics. So the vast majority now are highly inflation as the, the reward mechanism. Um, and I really don't understand how that can, anybody who's rational can view that as anything more than a bit like the government, uh, you know, that they're, they're taking money out of your wallet and then giving it back to you and saying, here you go, um, uh, if, if you stake And, and that's largely what a lot of these models are based upon. So then if you look at the, the underlying other value side to this, which is demand and what drives it, in many cases that's, that's linked to, uh, that's linked to usage of the underlying network or, or the, the application itself in some form. Um, that, that definitely has much more of a, a reasonable, um, value proposition Um, so if we take Shentai itself, you know, we issued a network token called Check, um, which incidentally is listed on Bitfinex. So you, you know, I, I, I talk and I should say in terms of, uh, talking down tether, obviously I, I have a good relationship with Bitfinex. I think they're a, a very, very good top five <laughs> global exchange. Um, but in terms of the checks token, um, why don't we step back and ask what it does um, as, a, as an interesting example of how a token can fit into a, a commercial p- product and package. Uh, the token is designed to be a highly liquid external facing token that's listed on a wide range of uh, exchanges and a wide range of different blockchain protocols. So it's your—it's an access token that enables people to get in and out of the network. And then you have to ask, well, OK, right now, what else does it do and why? Uh, Every single client that we we onboard onto the network in different forms um, ultimately drives demand outwards for the checks token. And what that translates into is uh, the underlying uh, network uh, fees and other types of uh, associated commercial activity, um, providing forms of uh, um, uh, reward for the checks holders. how they choose to actually realize those rewards is very much down to, or will be down to the underlying holders themselves, because that, that can lead to taxable events and, and so on and so forth. Um, but outside of that then, if we look at more complex uh, token economic modeling, it's much more advantageous to have multiple tokens across the network, because you can embed different properties in them for different purposes, and you can incentivize different types of network activity. So I don't want to kind of go maybe into too technical a level on this, but that's one of the reasons why uh the, the, the Shintai network itself ahead of launch uh Chet's holders will be able to um, this from this summer onwards be getting a range of additional network tokens that will be in readiness for the the network launch itself open to the the DeFi side of the network and, and the public. Um and and that's very much going to be geared towards aspects like liquidity provision. Collateralization and other services that we believe will be able to service the global financial system in controlled ways for the first time, as opposed to this this side that Anton, in particular, has been talking about, which is the DeFi system itself, which is really not fit for purpose in terms of being able
2: to uh, operate regulated markets and regulated assets.
3: Mm-hmm. Because I, I think too the you know I. One thing that I noticed last week, and I don't know if either of you saw it, but, um, Jerome Powell, you know, the Fed president was, uh, testifying before Congress and he made a, he made a point about, oh, we, you know, the Fed can create its own currency and, uh, uh you know, its own digital, basically crypto. And I thought that that spoke to the disconnect that even at the highest levels, people still don't understand the whole reason people got into the crypto space is because they don't trust you guys to what you're doing it, it's not they don't want to uh, give you that power um but at the same time how are we going to improve the financial space like you said if, if you're connected to this network um i think that's that makes a difference um and that yeah use. And, and
1: it's an interesting one i mean ultimately the, the, the crypto space has had a choice up until now. It, it can either innovate without any concern for the regulators or consequence and, uh, and stick two fingers up at the global financial system, frankly, and say, we couldn't care less, you can't stop us. Um, and they, there were a number mm-hmm. of cases where people have tried that. I mean, a good example is Bit, BitMEX, which, for those not familiar, for years was the largest crypto exchange globally, and it handled Bitcoin futures in particular. And it introduced some fairly outrageous concepts like 100x leverage, which basically meant that a highly controlled, manipulated market would suck in retail investors who would put half a Bitcoin down, 100x leverage, they'd get instantly wiped and could buy half, your, half a Bitcoin or whatever. In fact, I think I tried this out for a bit of fun, lost a couple of Bitcoin back in 2016 on, on, on it, just trying it out just to see what happened. Point is, that kind of model, um, is not sustainable long term. And, uh, the founders of Bit, Bitmax have both surrendered to the U.S. authorities in recent months, um, because they finally caught up with them and they've had enough of being ignored and, uh, effectively taunted in the press by, um, people who are effectively trying to imply that they are above, above the law, uh, or above regulation. And, uh, you know, we, we can take a look at other examples. Binance have, have similarly seemed to have painted something of a target on their back. Uh, probably again because they're they're not particularly interested in 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 that. But the alternative to that is actually that you can be respectful of, of regulators and understand that they're trying to fill a valid role. Uh, engage with them and and help shape their policy thinking. What the approach we've been taking day one. Um, it's not to say that you know regulators are not perfect. They they have individuals in there who are knowledgeable, but they are also learning as we're all learning and they benefit from learning um, and being given good information about what, what you're proposing. So as an example, um, when we deploy out the, the, this sort of walled rose garden upon which the, these regulated markets can operate, and there's going to be controls over who can participate in uh, regulated digital asset issuances and secondary marketplaces. On the other side, you've got the DeFi space, and we, we have built a regulatory bridge where we can control that interaction between the two. Now, some regulators might say, "Listen, we don't want we don't want DeFi providing any liquidity to your marketplaces, even even though it's going to be by a regulated participant doing that." You'll you'll have other regulators who say, "Actually, that's an entirely reasonable use case for it. Um, it's very controlled. It, it could actually add a ton of value, and it could provide much cheaper liquidity to, to all these industries." We're happy with that, and and it's over time that we'll find what uh, is acceptable to the regulators and what's not. But again. Um, by enabling a solution that actually can fit with whatever they decide, you end up with a more harmonious relationship. And that's where I hope to see a harmonious relationship form between the traditional finance industry that as it moves to digital assets and true DeFi, where obviously everything's completely unregulated and, and decentralized. And I think what we'll end up finding is that bulk of the economic activity operates in these, um, what is currently traditional finance, but in a, in a digital form. And we see some, unused, you know, long-term use cases um, from the, the true DeFi space too. Um, and, and really beyond that, it's very hard for any of us to predict how this is going to play out. I think it, 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 it's rather like looking back at sort of 1997 and saying you could foresee Amazon web services and social media and, and you know, everything we've seen in, in recent years with Uber and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think it's all we can do is say that there's going to be a high level of disruption. Uh, and we'll see some fascinating use cases start to probably evolve out of this that fundamentally change the business models.
0: Yeah, and so I, David... I... Oh, yeah. Uh... I mean we've we've touched on it you know throughout the podcast but I, I do want to make sure we do cover it you know as you are the CEO can you just explain I guess your guys' pitch and what the the Shintai platform is and the the mission I guess you guys have yeah, well, for Well yeah
1: the, space. the mission itself is is quite straightforward we want to completely open up access to this this concept of issuing digital assets and operating liquid secondary markets to everybody over time, and and I, I even mean down to the individual level eventually. Uh, now, this this raises an interesting question, which is if anybody can issue a, a token and it has no actual underlying value, you're issuing let's let's be fair, the classic chip coin that has no actual, actual underlying value. So there have to be limitations on this, right? It has to be it has to be a valid um, proposition in some form. But if you're an artist, for example. What's, what's to say that you issuing an NFT of your, your artwork in some form is not valid. Um, it, value is such a subjective thing. So ultimately that is the aim. But in, in the immediate term, what we are, um, are doing is deploying a, a, a platform the beta program, private industry beta program, which launched on July 31st. So we're, you know, excited to, to kick that off. Um, and it's about integrating the issuance and, and secondary market um, functions into a fully uh, integrated suite for the first time. We're we're not interested in becoming some sort of centralized marketplace like an eBay of digital assets. uh, There are a lot of players out there you'll see, and that seems to be what they're trying to do, which goes to us completely counter to how to build a uh, really powerful, productive, uh, harmonious relationship with the industry long-term. What we're doing instead is providing a tech solution, uh, software as a service, if you like, to as wide a range of institutions as possible. Now. Some of them can leverage us directly with our branding and with our licensing and for them it's going to be the obvious um, way to go forward. but for a lot of others they're going to want to build into lines out for themselves facing their own client base and there they get to just leverage the platform they can issue out dynamic forms of securities real estate bonds other forms of debt uh and and, and in theory over time it'll be nfts as well um and they can decide the types of marketplace they want to deploy it in theory as well, or they can utilize an existing market operator unless they're instead. Um, and with that comes this concept of, uh, automated market making. Um, and what, what we've got that's, I think, quite different is we have true one-sided liquidity provision, which is, for those not familiar, um, it removes this kind of concept of just impermanent loss and introduces another concept called impermanent gain, which you can get on both sides. That's going to, I think, fundamentally change the dynamic of liquidity provision um, and how it works. Um, and it will actually act as quite a powerful signal for asset pricing um, as well. So, But whereby uh, liquidity providers will play a role in deciding whether or not they think assets become irrationally valued. And they may take to choose to lock in an impermanent gain uh, and take their liquidity out of the market, for example, in a certain scenario and they they will go back in and other scenarios as well. It, it's going to, uh, I think, fundamentally change certain certain things like that. But the other big um, core part of this is operating on a permission blockchain for the first time. And what that really means is that um, we'll have a compliance control framework that people can choose to subscribe to for a, a given jurisdiction like say Singapore or the US. And uh, when they deploy those marketplaces or, or they carry out an issuance, they can also restrict um, which kind of uh, in types of investors uh, based on their geography and, and the, the KYC AML process, the onboarding process they've gone through, they, they can basically operate a fully licensed, um, and, uh, regulatory compliant marketplace. And, uh, that for me is, is going to be the most exciting thing that we see with the platform launching is that we, we've really got a solution here that industry need and it's going to enable digital assets to be, uh, deployed actively this year. It's not, you know, yet another year of us sort of talking about. When will mass adoption happen, and when are we actually going to see some meaningful issuances? Um, in my view, it's it, the year is twenty twenty-one, and it's going to start happening in the next six months.
0: Yeah, and a uh, full disclosure to everyone listening: I for, before I forget to talk about this, Anton and myself, uh, as well as Chimera Wealth, uh, are investors with Shintai um, and have, have partnered with them because we too ourselves, right, are very excited. Just having all three of us here having that background in the the financial the traditional financial space the operational component and how there are those kind of inefficiencies i'm i'm really excited to see you know how the technology that you guys have developed will impact because i think it will itself uh impact the the industry as a whole, for for the better, I'm I'm really oh, excited for that. I totally to agree with you, and, and I mean,
1: just to give an illustration of the variety of this, we talked a lot about uh, the existing DeFi space, and we talked about security, real estate. But you know, another use case that's that's being driven in, e- even in this beta stage, is is um, an example which is, I, th- I think really shows how diverse digital assets could be. A company um, is handling this concept of called blue carbon, which for those not familiar relates to um, carbon that can be trapped rather than growing trees through uh, seaweed, which grows a thousand times faster. And it enables vastly more carbon to actually be stored um, uh, in a secure way for hundreds of years and effectively trapped and removed. It enables them um, that to be tokenized um, without a backing mechanism. And then in theory, you, you can have a liquid secondary market. now. Uh, In that particular case, they're talking about governments being involved already with them and hundreds of millions of dollars of initial capital going into that marketplace. I I only bring it up just to illustrate something I find fascinating, which is just how diverse use cases can be way beyond just the the traditional financial products we're talking about. Digital assets and tokenization really can encompass almost any of these kinds of types of industry scenarios too. And, that's where it gets interesting. That's where as well, it, it gets particularly interesting with things like real estate as well, because not only can you fractionalize real estate and add liquidity to a really illiquid asset class for the time, first time, but you can embed other properties like uh, the ability to uh, timeshare. Um, you could tokenize uh, commercial real estate and, and actually enable its usage to be kind of converted in different forms or the, the way that, you know, we currently have, uh, we work um, for, you know, for, for kind of flexible usage. You could see uh, whole swathes of commercial real estate no longer being used due to the, the pandemic being repurposed and utilized in some form of tokenized you know, issuance um, platform that, that enables that too. So, all of these types of things get get enabled. And it goes back to what I was saying that we're going to enter this period of innovation, I think, where people are going to come along with business ideas and say, great, we can utilize Shintai for this purpose, for the ongoing issuance, the compliance, the trading functions under the hood. And then we've got this whole other business that's doing something really unique and disruptive. And, and then you know, the end users aren't even going to know they're utilizing Shintai in any capacity in, in that scenario, but they're going to be utilizing an incredible platform that's doing something really different and
2: disrupting a whole set.
3: So I think one thing I had two questions on that you see earlier, you said that you're not trying to be the eBay of, you know, like creating the marketplace. Um, it sounded like to me, because I think of me as the layman who's not, because I am, I have been a little bit more cautious when it comes to the crypto space. Um, so to me, it sounded like you were describing kind of what Bill Gates did with Microsoft, where he was saying, hey, we're not, we're not trying to build uh, and sell you, sell IBM, the Microsoft suite. It's we're going to license, we're going to partner, with these hardware firms would you say that that's an accurate kind of description or like an analogy i guess of in a way it, it, it's, of it's, what not, it's not a million miles off
1: yeah in, in the sense that um what we're trying to do is, is is obviously onboard as many onto the network as possible to to benefit from the cross-network effects that they'll get from that but we are ultimately yeah we're providing a software solution that we want to keep really harmonized with our partners and uh, and dynamically enhanced right. uh, based on their feedback, continuous innovation, and so on and so forth. I guess the one thing I'm not comfortable with that analogy is the fact that Microsoft became a hideously anti-competitive and a monopoly, and, and we have no interest in becoming that. <laughs> right. So, uh, I guess yeah, if you look at the if you look at the uh, the, the, the financial services equivalent, I, I look back and it's littered with some firms that almost got too dominant. Um, Bloomberg is a great example, and the amount they've been charging data for years. The clean data, um, particularly instrument data, and then you could look at the role of, say, SWIFT within the global financial system. Prohibitively expensive. It's underinvested. It's underperformed. Yes. In all these types of cases, what you end up doing is incentivizing the industry participants to bypass them any way they can and invest hard to, to build an alternative solution. Um, so I would far rather we had a harmonious relationship with uh, with, with client base, ultimately, whereby. We're there to support the them, we're there to enable innovation and we're there to enable them to, to deploy out lots of competing marketplaces and solutions and so on and so forth. And that's another reason why we, we've got some quite clear limits on the network as to what we're going to try and provide. Um, but, you know, t- take uh, custodial solutions. There's a, there's a definite need for high quality custodial solutions. Well, we could do that ourselves. I prefer to have a multitude of, of custodial providers and a KYC, AML providers and really let the, the, um, the uh, clients on the network pick and choose the very best. And that really goes right down to the modular design of what we're building ourselves, which is, they might want to, in theory, just deploy on the network itself um, and bypass every facet of the Shentai platform, so not utilize it for issuance, not utilize it for market making, and not even, in theory, utilize the compliance control framework, although good luck then trying to enforce compliance. I don't know how they do that, but they could, in theory, try. Um and they could build their own um exchange rival exchange or or issuance platform where they could build their own alternative issuance um uh platform that, that rivals it and maybe it'll be better and that that kind of competition is just generally very very healthy for the industry um and again, it really for us we benefit regardless of the network effect so it's it's um it's about trying to capitalize on that as well, and by doing that you you're not going to do that if you sit there and go up to a bank and say. Yeah, we, you know, come and deploy on our exchange or our branded marketplace because they're going to look at that and say, well, why would I want to become overly dependent on you in this early, you know, stage of technology? Right. This is why some of the earliest discussions, we, we've already been in discussions with some of the largest financial institutions and banks globally and had an extremely positive response from a number of them. Um, way more positive than I was expecting actually. It's, it's tremendous and. In, in a few cases, one of the questions that's come from them is, how do we migrate digital assets from another product, um, protocol to you? What would be the process for that? And also, in theory, what's the process for migrating off you later on? And that's a very, very good question and a very valid concern because anybody um, utilizing any technical solution in digital assets right now should not be building some sort of critical dependency on any provider long term. You know, They should have that right, in my view. To move technical technical providers and move those digital assets wherever they wherever they please and choose, and that's what's going to uh, keep us lean, competitive, innovative, and hungry. Um, is, is that risk, you know? And so, I want to make sure that that's something that all the clients onboarding can do as well. Um, it might sound counterintuitive, but I think strategically long term, it's by far the best thing, which is to keep your interests super aligned with the, with your
2: clients and customers. Yeah.
3: Well, and, uh, that, that I think is, is good to hear. I think it's, I think that's probably why you like, you kind of labeled it more as like a tech support and you want it because you, you do want that competition. You do want that, that partnership with people that you're working with. Um, I guess one question I do have as well, and I think you mentioned one already. Um, and uh, you know, when you have described what you're trying to do, I've been kind of thinking to myself, okay, how would this be used? In a, like, how would I use it? How, what's the real world use? And you mentioned real estate already. Are there, like, are there three areas? Obviously, you said you want it to be broad. You want a broad use, but certain areas to implement the use might take a little more work and creativity than others. As you mentioned, some of these financial institutions have asked, uh, how are we going to migrate some of these assets? But are there, let's say maybe three areas that you think are kind of no brainers because the that the use should be the easiest and the most uh i guess yeah the easiest decision to make the the change to i, I cuz i think of real estate people purchase cars you know so some of these purchases that people make that you know can take a lot of paperwork a lot of vetting and just the process takes a long time there should be ways that I think they could be more efficient. And we've already mentioned our industry of you know just traditional investing. So are there three areas that you think are easier than oh, others? Definitely.
1: Yeah, and there's also – it's not just three areas. It's what's the industry-led demand coming from because that's really obviously mm-hmm. going to be one of the core drivers here. And, and by far the biggest is tokenized real estate, the, the ability to fractionalize real estate, Um, and actually add liquidity to it for the first time. I mean, if you look at the value of real estate, it's actually disproportionately low compared to things like bonds and uh, securities. And yet it's this tangible um, asset-backed thing, which which really should make it extremely valuable. So the question is, well, why is it undervalued? And and for me, the single biggest thing is that it's highly illiquid, which makes it a very difficult thing to trade in and out of. I know we have REITs, real estate investment trusts, and other types of unitization of it. They're not really particularly accessible to the average investor. Um, they're also not very dynamic, and they're quite expensive. Um, so definitely uh, real estate is uh, um, one of the big things
2: for us. And then outside of that, uh, we um, also think securities and debt are going to be the other big
3: um so the in, the point you just made about uh real estate I think is an interesting one because historically real estate was the most valued asset in the world. It didn't matter where you were, real estate was the most valued asset in the world. And I I kind of have a theory as to why uh that value relative to some of those other assets that you just mentioned um has, I would say, relatively declined. And I think it coincides with the ease of, maybe not the ease, but the electronic aspect of transactions. And you know, now people go into the stock market, it's far easier to buy stocks and bonds um, today um, electronically than it was 100 years ago or 200 years ago. And there's more access to everyday people. But at the same time, The, the real estate process, like you said, is, is there's a lot of, um, uh, there's just a lot of work involved and the process to buy real estate and have access to it, whether it's fractional, um, is just, it's, it's just hard. So that's where, um, I think that makes a difference, but, but that, like you said, historically real estate, it was not undervalued. I kind of, I think, um, in that way.
0: Yeah. And so, uh, so before we wrap up, uh, David, we always like to give our guests, especially someone like you, as, as informed as you are, the the last word on whatever you'd like to know. A, uh, where can people find more information about you and, and Shintai and the platform itself? And any last remarks that you have for the audience?
1: Yeah, um, well, firstly, we should probably spell it right C H I N T A I. It means lease in Japanese for those curious because our first use case was leasing and it was a bit of a nod to Satoshi and the whole Japanese pseudonymous identity um, thing. But uh, yeah, to find out more about us, www.shintai.io or at uh, Shintai Network uh, on Twitter as well. Um, and in terms of, yeah, parting kind of en- ending remarks on this, generally, it's been great to, to uh, have a free-flowing conversation on all of this and, and the evolution of the, the systems, uh, some of the challenges we're going to see, and I think some of the future direction of, of both Gentile as a platform and the general uh, digital asset sector. Uh, for me, I think the only parting remark I would say is that uh, for anybody listening who, who's thinking of maybe getting into this space or wants to go the entrepreneurial route, that my takeaway as uh, somebody who kind of went into this, Having shut down another business, X did that and was really trying to decide what to do next, is the the biggest advice I can give people generally is to, uh, frankly, start down a route and follow your passion and area of interest. And from that, if you come up with an idea that looks like it has real value, pursue that and start to pull together resources and people who are genuinely prepared to actually do work and, and work with you. And from that, you'll find, you know, an initial team of people will come together. And even if they don't stay with you on, on longer term in the journey, things will flow from that. And that, that's definitely the story of, of Shintai. You know, it started off as a, a completely organic uh, community project where I just went out on Reddit of all places and asked to, if there are any developers interested uh, because I was going to publish a white paper out with an idea. And, uh, you know, I found one or two developers I thought were, really, you know, worth, worth actually joining me. They're not still with us, but, you know, from that, um, I found the CTO of the company. Um, and, uh, you know, from that, I'm uh, also being involved in, in the launch of a blockchain. I, I found the COO as well, and we all came together as a core team. Um, so I, I think for people who, who sort of are maybe listening and thinking, I'd love to go the entrepreneurial route, I just don't know what to do, or I don't think I could do it. The, the big lesson for me from all of this is that, that you actually, if you get out there, and put yourself out there and prepare to put in sweat capital to just do something. Um, You'll find there are a few others out there who do as well. And if you just don't accept no for an answer and just keep pushing, you will eventually get over the line and can achieve some impossible things. I I remember people saying to me, I can't believe you've actually built a full exchange uh, system uh, on a blockchain within two and a half months of the launch of this new protocol. They, they couldn't get my, their head around the fact that I'd come up with an idea in February and by October this thing was live. And, you know, it seemed almost impossible, right? We did it with almost no real funding. We did it with just some sweat capital of, of some passionate invest um, you know, developers and, and myself and, and some others, but anything is possible. And then from that, you know, you can look at it and say, well, how do you sort of get through a crypto winter with very little funding? you're prepared to make sacrifices, you can do that. And then you get out on the other side of a round where you close a seven and a half million dollar funding round with some multi-billion dollar backing. And, um, and, and you can do it, but you have to just be, you know, tenacious, not accept a, a no for an answer and, and generally be passionate about what you're doing. And, um, so that's my parting thought really for anybody listening who, who thinks, yeah, I'd like to get into the digital asset space and do something, but I'm not sure what. Um, it, I would say plunge in head first and, and stay
2: open minded. And you will find opportunities. You can create them.
0: That is great life advice in in general. <laughs> so I hope everyone listening, that's great. Well, I'm old. I'm, Don't forget, 100%, so,
1: so I, I, I've got the age of wisdom <laughs> on my side. These days. <laughs> hey, age, age. As
0: I've learned throughout my lifetime, age is just a number. All right, I've uh, I've been around and seeing people a lot older than me having to a lot more energy and the ability to do things than that I'll, I'll get there one day.
2: You'll get all one day, you
0: know. Uh, yeah. you have anything <laughs> less to say? Yeah, pretty much.
3: <laughs> um, I, I mean I just I've I appreciated David uh joining us. Um I think I think it's it's good to hear uh his perspective on the crypto space in general. I mean it's been very good because I, I haven't had exposure to uh, much to the crypto space, but then a lot of times when you're talking to people, they just have this, you know, raw, raw mentality of I love crypto, you know, just very crypto, crypto. And when when I've always searched for, okay, well, what's the what's the true purpose behind it beyond just oh I'm creating a coin, or I like this coin. And he has a company that I think he's created that uh, is that he's trying to create a purpose in it, but also have add value to the economic activity. Um, and, uh, I think he and I, th- I like the perspective that he's brought to that. We're going to bring um, you again. Uh, well, we? Yeah, definitely, definitely. have you, a have
0: you guest a again. A general
1: uh, discussion on things like yeah. NFTs and the, and the wider crypto space. I'm always happy to give opinions if if you're curious. So, sure, love to.
0: Oh, perfect. Like I said, I, I yes. love that you have that perspective, right? Of both our, our kind of traditional area, but also in the, the more digitized and, the up and coming space. I, I so. have
1: healthy cynicism of both sides. How's that?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good way yeah. to put it.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, everyone, till
0: next time, you have a good one. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice, or recommendations on any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and the possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional.